Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Happy New Year. Uh, If you're a first-time listener to the podcast, you should catch all of our previous episodes. You can do it on iTunes or on Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal. We've already spoken with several high-profile bankers and lawyers who are doing deals real-time, including Frank Aquila at Sullivan & Cromwell, Rob Townsend at Morrison & Forster or MoFo, and Scott Box, CEO of the boutique investment bank Greenhill. We've also had a couple predictions episodes about what the biggest deals of 2016 are going to be. Uh, we do a really good one with Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Brooke Sutherland. She has some specific picks. And the other is a really interesting look into what deals are going to happen in the first three to six months of the year by using technology from a company called Intralinks that tracks electronic due diligence. Anyways, it's all at Bloomberg.com backslash podcasts, where you can subscribe to all of Bloomberg's excellent podcasts beyond this one. Uh, And one of them, Odd Lots, our first guest recently appeared on. So today I'm looking forward to this episode quite a bit because Ed Hammond is joining us, one of Bloomberg's M&A reporters. He'll be joining us in just a second. Along with my colleague Matt Monks, another one of Bloomberg's M&A reporters. In fact, the three of us our Bloomberg's U.S. M&A team. And the topic of the show today is going to be explaining what we do for a living. So the three of us uh, spend our days breaking stories or trying to break stories for Bloomberg, and we'll explain sort of how we do this and why we're doing what we're doing. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And this week, another Bloomberg exclusive, Dublin-based Shire is in advanced talks to buy Illinois-based Bexalta, in a deal worth more than $32 billion. And joining us, one of the reporters that broke the story, Ed Hammond. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Ed covers healthcare, consumer, and real estate deals for us. So first of all, let's start from the bottom here. What are Shire and Bexalta? It's a good question. So so Shire and Bexalta, I suppose, in essence, are big, big healthcare companies. Um, and Shire is one of the biggest in what it does, which is kind of rare diseases. And by rare diseases, it sort of specializes in hematology and oncology, which is kind of blood and uh, cancer-related diseases. Baxalta does something pretty similar, as in it sort of also broadly falls under this rare diseases umbrella, and also specializes in particular strands of cancer that are sort of difficult to treat and that there are not necessarily obvious cures for. The the one sort of key difference between the two companies is that Baxalta does a lot of its own manufacturing. It still has a very large R&D component, something Shire has slightly moved away from in recent years. And there are, I guess, obvious benefits of scale in this kind of business because it would reduce your overall spend on research and development. And Shire, I mean, this wouldn't be the first deal Shire has done to sort of expand its portfolio of rare disease drugs. It bought um, uh, Diax very recently. I think that deal is actually yet to close. And then MPS Pharmaceuticals, which it did a deal with last year for about sort of six or seven billion dollars. And this is not the first time we've heard these two names together, right? This was there was a earlier iteration of a deal that we reported on earlier in 2015, correct? Yeah, that's right. Shire was actually extremely aggressive in trying to, to trying to buy Baxalta. So Baxalta, the backstory was it was it was spun out of Baxter um, in I think the spin was completed in July or late June, 
And Shire turned up three weeks later and offered to buy the company outright. Now, its original offer was um, was much too low, according to Baxalter. It was also all stock, uh, which Baxalter said it, it didn't really want anything to do with because obviously Shire's share price could go down a lot. It had gone up on a lot of speculation that Shire itself would be taken over. So doing an all stock deal would, was seen as, as not the right move by Baxalter's board. And they've been kind of talking ever since. But it, it looked at one point, sort of around Thanksgiving, it looked like the deal had actually died. And there were a few reports out there saying that the two companies had ceased discussions and that this thing wasn't going to go anywhere. Is this another one of these inversion deals or, or is this not one? It's not an inversion in as much as the acquirer is the um, the Irish domicile company. It would have the effect, if, if this deal goes through, it would have the effect of bringing down the overall tax rate. Um, of the combined company quite significantly. So I think at the moment, Baxalter's tax rate is around about 23%. Um, if the two companies got together, Baxalter's tax rate would go down to 17%, which is what Shire currently has being domiciled in Ireland. So you mentioned Shire itself was sort of a takeover target for a little while. Who who was it that was theoretically going to buy Shire? Well, not even theoretically. Uh, Abvi um, had a deal for Shire. It was uh, it was sort of all but done. Um, it was one of these deals where it was a fairly aggressive inversion transaction that was going to be Abvi's route to uh, to redomiciling out of the US. Um, the market had sort of warmed up to it, and the two companies had done a lot of publicity around it, saying, you know, this is a great deal, makes sense for everyone. And then, obviously, the um, the US government came out very, very strongly against inversions, and at the very, very last minute, sort of balked uh, and said, actually, this isn't something we can do, and we're abandoning the deal. So, so Shire had been really a target for them, but also is one of these kind of perennial takeover targets for any of the big pharma companies wanting to. And then, of course, we saw Pfizer-Allergan, which was just a much larger inversion in the same basic business. Yes, probably the largest, certainly, healthcare inversion we'll probably ever see. Um, And look, that that also had an effect on Shire, because Shire was obviously a potential target for either of those companies at some point in the future. And I think now that they've done their deal, that probably goes away. Um, But yes, that was... uh, Less aggressive because the two companies are more comparable in size. I think Abvishai would have been a sort of, you know, potentially more egregious example of taking advantage of the um, the, the tax loophole. So, just broadly speaking, why are we seeing all of these healthcare deals? I mean, it's it's been fairly even a casual viewer of M and A would probably realize that we saw a lot of healthcare M and A last year. So, why exactly is this happening, and do we expect it to keep happening in 2016? Uh, to answer the last part of that first, yes, I think we do expect it to keep happening in 2016, with the caveat that I think we will see fewer of the very, very large deals. I think the sort of $50 billion and above deals, there will be a slowdown in that, if only because the the, num- the physical number of companies um, in, that, in that sort of uh, bracket is small, and we've seen a lot of them do their deals. Um, why are we seeing so many deals in healthcare? So... It's a sort of confluence of, of reasons. One, it, obviously, the, the inversion logic, which has been much discussed and has driven a lot of deals in the space. Um, another, which is a big part of this, is that there is this sort of battle in, in healthcare between R&D, or research and development spending, and just being a sort of distributor of existing products. And you have companies like Valiant, who really subscribe very strongly to the second model, and they say, look, we, we shouldn't do any research and development. We should just buy um, small drug companies take their portfolios of products and sell those products. And so you're seeing a lot of companies doing this sort of roll-up model where they go out and they they do deal after deal after deal after deal to build up their portfolio. They don't do any research and development and they sell stuff off the back of it. And that's, that's what Valiant does. And a lot of companies follow that and have done deals on the back of that. 
And then the other thing that I think is going on in healthcare is it just deals beget deals. We've seen a lot of tie-ups between the big guys, between the middle guys, between the small guys. And I think if you're in the space and you're seeing your rivals, you know, double in size or triple in size through M&A, you're looking over your shoulder and thinking, either I'm going to get bought, or I need to go out and buy someone. And I think that is just driven this phenomenal wave of deals across the space. Ed Hammond, our healthcare M&A reporter, among other things, has broken many of those biggest deals. So Ed, stay with us here. I want to bring in the the third member of our triumvirate here, uh, M&A reporter Matt Monks, who covers the financial industry, energy, industrials, utilities. I think that's that's it, roughly at least. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so again, the three of us make up Bloomberg's U.S. M&A team. So we're the three reporters that cover strictly M&A. Our global boss is Jeff McCracken, who you've heard on previous episodes uh, of the show. So we thought it would be interesting, especially to start the year, to talk about what it is we do and why we do this. Uh, the first thing that I sort of wanted to intro us with is that our primary mandate here is to break news on deals. That is the main charge of the three of us. And so what we were trying to do on a daily basis is uncover information that is not yet public and make that information public. And as a side effect of doing that, our most impactful stories typically will move markets. They'll move stocks and bonds because it's material news about companies that's not Public. So I wanted to ask you guys sort of the first question, which is the question that I am most frequently asked by people that want to know sort of what I do. Why are people talking to us? Matt? Um, I think about this, um, and the main way I think about it is sources run a full spectrum from people that never talk to M&A reporters because they know better to people that are just totally transactional, dirty dogs that want to swap information. And then there's people in between. Um, the, the people in between, why do they talk to us? They talk to us out of, uh, well, they're interested in knowing what we know about. Uh, they want to hear what we have to say. They want to uh, get the information that we have. Um, everybody likes a scoop, and we tend to be a hub of information. Um, and then they also talk to us out of simple vanity. Everybody likes to be important and talk about what they do, and they want to be, prove themselves to be a player. Um, and then another situation that companies talk to us is because um, when we get the scoop, it is in their interest oftentimes to talk to us or to help us out um, to make sure that we have it right, essentially. I'll add one more bullet point to that, which is I think people talk to me, I hope people talk to me because of, so vanity is on one extreme, and I will say humanity is on the other extreme. I am a human being asking them. Yeah. I am trying to do my job, and I think that there's some element of just general helpfulness that comes across in certain people that when they realize that I'm calling them five times a week. Yeah. Maybe they'll pick up the phone one of those five times and try to help me as much as they can, at least. I, I think that last point, I def, I mean, I agree with all of these bullet points, um, but that last point is an interesting one. I think it's true. I think too often we, we assume that there's some sort of obvious motive for why people help us. And I think that's right that sometimes, you know, people see we're working very hard. We're trying to do our job. It's extremely competitive. They're probably doing something similar, albeit on, on sort of the, a different part of the equation. And I think sometimes just that, that effort is rewarded in the way you, you say. So we also have competitors, of course. Uh, I mean, our main competitors are the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, the Financial Times, the New York Times to some degree, CNBC to some degree. So these people are also calling the same world of people that we're calling. So at some level, I think if you are on the end of information and it comes time where you feel like you are comfortable sharing that information – 
and you've got seven different people calling you, and you have to make a decision on who you are going to share that information with. And I think that the number one reason is relationship-based. I mean, you, you want to have a relationship with someone who you know, I'll give this information to this person, and they will do right with the information. So I think that is where the humanity part kicks in to some degree, where you realize that if the Wall Street Journal gets a story before we get a story, it's probably due to the fact that they had a relationship, a stronger relationship with someone than we do who happens to be working on this deal. And sometimes that may be because they happen to know a person that the three of us flat out don't know, or maybe they've just built a stronger relationship with someone we do know. And, you know, there's always a guessing game, I think, that goes on in our world about how competitors break stories when we don't get them. And I'm curious if you guys think there's more to that. There's like an unlimited amount of sort of uh, self-flagellation that we can go through on, on guessing, right? Who, how someone got something, which of our sources they spoke to, did they have a better relationship with someone that we think we have a good relationship with, etc. Um, but but I think the um, the issue around sort of how we put ourselves to the front of that queue, as you say, we have a lot of competitors, a lot of very good competitors who are sort of equally um, aggressive and determined to get to the scoop. Um it's, it's an interesting balance because I think sometimes it is clearly that we just have a better relationship with someone. So it could be an individual that likes us more, or trusts us more, or we've done stories with them before and they like the way that we, you know, work with them. And I think the other side of it, and we see this, you know, fairly often with, with certain competitors in particular, we will be or they will be the kind of conduit of choice to get certain information into the market. And that might reflect much more kind of the readership that they have or the ability to move certain stocks or bonds, you know, with that particular organ. So it could be that someone, they might go to Bloomberg specifically because they know that we talk very immediately to a certain kind of reader, you know, and particularly the, the sort of the traders. And equally, if, if there was a different kind of message that wanted to be delivered, they could go to the Times or they could go to the Wall Street Journal or to the FT. You know, I've been in situations where um, you know, I've made the argument to people why they should talk to me first. Um, and I'll be transparent about it. Uh, I'll be like, listen, you got to come to me first, all right? I cover this stuff better than anybody. You know, so-and-so at Reuters is a clown. I know this stuff better than anybody. Um, and then when I'm actually, you know, asking for a handout, I'll be like, I've been up on this more than anybody else. You guys should come to me first. I'm going to get it right. And I think people respond to that. But going back to your main point, it is. It is all about relationships. And, you know, relationships take many forms. Either you just have a natural chemistry with somebody or uh, you did a solid for them in the past or, you know, they're taking a leap of faith with you. So I, I want to hit on one point you, you talked about there, Matt, which is the idea of handouts. There are a few different things, and we can talk about a couple of these, that are mis perceptions of sort of what's happening than when we break a story. And and the most common misperception is that there is some sort of strategic leak around this story. So there's some someone's in a room or whatever and they're all huddling up. All right, let's have X person call up Bloomberg and tell them what's going on and then they'll put out this story. That that does occasionally happen. It doesn't usually happen with Bloomberg, I'll say. I think it happens far more frequently with one or two of our competitors. By and large, the vast majority of the time, I will tell you this, but I can speak for the three of us on this, that is not what's happening. What's happening is that 
the three of us are are making phone calls and meeting with people and trying to meet with as large of an amount of people as we can and we pick up information and based on our relationships and the relationships of our company news reporters we are able to corroborate information and then the story gets out it is not a strategic leak it is purely relationship based so it's just something that has always irritated me because I am often on the other end of phone calls from investors or readers saying, why was this information leaked? And the answer is, and, or, or why did the story come out today? That, that's a big thing I get. You know, earnings are tomorrow. Someone is playing you. Well, no, the answer is I had lunch with X person. And then, like, I, you know, had to run home and, and uh, pick up my kid from daycare. So the story came out at 8.30 and not yesterday at 4.30. So... You know, it's something that has always sort of irritated me about the job. I don't know if you guys sort of feel the same way that that's a common misperception of what's happening. I have a point on that. I, I do, first, yes, I do think it's a common sort of uh, misperception. People always assume that there's a sort of strategic reason for why we're in possession of information at a certain point, which is, as you say, frankly, most of the time is incorrect. But I do think that there is a correlation between sort of how near a deal is to being announced or how advanced discussions are or how real a particular situation is or isn't and when we report the story and I think the reason that is isn't because we're being strategically leaked stuff it's because simply the circle of people who know about a particular situation widens as that situation sort of moves forward and so all all our, all our stories have to start somewhere right they all come with some tip from somewhere and Normally, at the very, very, very beginning of a process, the number of people who know about it is tiny. And so the chance of getting leaked goes down and it goes up exponentially as you near the event. And so it isn't, as it were, coincidental that we tend to get a lot of our stories quite close to when something happens. But to be fair, strategic leaks do happen. Uh, I would put it around maybe 10 percent. That sounds 20%. right. 20 percent. I agree with that. Um, the, 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 the classic strategic leak would be like um, it's... Uh, the weekend before the deal, and the CEO wants to get his picture in the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, that's the classic one. That's the classic one. They and want not, it to be on the front page of the Wall yeah, Street Journal. That's Absolutely. Uh, another one is um, they will also strategically leak it if it's um, you know maybe a smallish kind of deal in the you know less than five billion range, or if it's a deal that's unusually complicated that they want to kind of um, yeah. uh, control the narrative. But strategic leaks do happen, and then there's also a darker um, aspect to it where um, somebody involved will leak it very pointedly, and uh, either they'll They'll give it to you because you already have it. But also, I've had people give me stuff for reasons that, you know, I don't really want to know. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm assuming they're trying to either run up the price or um, also uh, you'll see a thing where, you know, they were involved in the process and got left out and they're just mad about it. Um, that's the uh, murkier end of a strategic leaks for somebody that has the nuts and they'll give it to you for some kind of strange personal reason. And that's probably happening more often than the than the first like clear cut. I agree with that. Leak, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bad feelings or some sort of axe to grind. I would say that's probably or putting pressure on a counterparty or putting or pressure, putting on, pressure on, a on a counterparty. And yeah. you know, and that, and that goes to the point that I'm going to bring up, which also I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, what we do is we pester people and get them to essentially tell us things they're not supposed to. You know, so on that on the one hand, you know we're you would think we wouldn't be invited to the table. But on the other hand, I've spent time thinking about this. We are part of the M&A ecosphere, you know? So you have corporations, which are the, the, the companies that are doing the actual deals. You have the M&A advisors, the investment bankers, the lawyers. Then you have the PR advisors um, that are in there as well. And we are another spoke in that wheel. We're way, we're way at the bottom of the food chain, you know, but we are a part of 
the process. I don't know if that's <clears throat> because, you know, we were invited into the process as MNA reporters back in the 90s when MNA started take, taking off or if we're just something that's there that they take advantage of. But we are part of the process and we do fit into uh, the equation. I'll throw out one other reason why I think people talk to us. And this gets into some of the more insidious nature of the game, perhaps, depending on your perspective. I think that there is a general perception, and this may be right or wrong, that if you are helpful to us, then we will portray whatever firm or company you work at in a better light. So if you are someone working at a company and you are helpful, or you are someone working at a bank and you are helpful, or you are somebody, someone working at a law firm or you are, and you're helpful, uh, I do think there's probably some sense that, hey, if I'm helpful to this reporter, Bloomberg will give me more positive coverage than if I'm not. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. No, that's fair. Wall Street's a transactional place, you know, and it's what can you do for me? What can I do for you? And you always have to be mindful of that, you know, um, and maneuvering within that kind of system. Well, just curious for you guys, why do you guys do this job? What is it about this job that is appealing to you? Um, I think it's you're at the sharp end, and I think for any reporter, almost whatever you're covering, you know that's kind of where you want to be. I suppose the equivalent would be if you're a political reporter, you want to be covering, in, in from where I'm from, the kind of the sitting parliament of the day, and probably here, the White House, um, because it's where the decisions are being made. It's where the stuff that actually affects people, or in this case, affects companies and affects stock markets and bond markets. It's where those decisions are being taken, and you can contribute to that effect and you can actually have a significant role in it. And I think that's exciting. I think the the, the, the sort of traditional job of a company reporter, which, which sort of I did for years, and I think all of us around this table did for some time, is covering a, a, a sort of range of different companies or an industry in its entirety. Uh, and that's interesting, but you don't actually typically get to make news or break news that really has a material impact on those companies or on that industry. The difference in M&A is that if we publish a story... It can have a huge effect on the market. It can it can move the company's stock one way or another. And also, we're writing about stuff that is almost by definition material to the companies we cover. My reason for doing it is kind of more pragmatic. I'm not Journalism is a tough racket. I've been doing it for 12 years. Um, uh, you know, About five years ago, I took a look around at the landscape and realized the bottom was falling out from it. And you know, if you want to survive in this business, in the world of journalism... You have to, um, I hate using this phrase, you know, prove that you can add value to something. If you're just a, a rote beat company reporter that writes up press releases, you're replaceable. You know, what's one thing that can't be replaced? A scoop, right? A scoop is a skills. If you can get scoops, you are valuable. Um, five years ago, I decided, you know, what can I do to get scoops? I'm like, M&A reporter, boom, I can do that. And it's fun. It's interesting. And if I, you're, you're pretty good at it. You can prove your value. Mm. And, um, you know, just for, so as a survival thing, I decided the way to stay afloat in this tough journalism game was to prove my value doing something <laughs> difficult that's always going to be useful. I definitely agree with that. Certainly at Bloomberg, too, there's mm. a high value placed on breaking uh, deals, which yeah. is so so internally you feel some sort of value. Um I'll also say the job is very varied. I'm covering companies that do all sorts of different things, and I'm covering it in a niche enough way that it's not completely overwhelming. I would say it's somewhat overwhelming. Do you feel like the scope? I mean, Ed, you came from the Financial Times where you yeah. literally covered the entire world of M&A. That is enormously overwhelming to me, at least. Yeah, and and look, I think um, 
I think the nice thing about the the way we cover M and A, and whether it was at the FT or whether we cover it here, is is it's it, it's all art and no science. There's there is no formulaic way to break a news story, right? You couldn't sit someone down and say this is how you get a scoop. Every single story is different. Everyone approaches everything single story differently, and I like that about it. it as you say, it kind of constantly changes, um, and it, and it and it's massive. I mean, you're talking about technology being like a a broad, you know, it's a broad spectrum of companies and a broad spectrum of, I guess transactional events, be that M&A or spin-offs or IPOs, etc. And when I covered it at the FT, I, as you say, I covered the kind of whole waterfront with a focus on kind of North America, but obviously a lot of European stuff as well, because for a large part of the time I was doing the job there, there was no one in Europe covering M&A. Um, the challenge was basically the same. The difference was that I had less time to actually um, get to know the companies I was covering and the industries I was covering. So I probably missed a bunch of stories just because I didn't necessarily pick up on the kind of strategic rationale for certain deals. Uh, whereas now covering healthcare, covering consumer retail, it's much easier for me to have a focus and say, well, hold on, this deal makes sense and this deal makes sense. And look, maybe one in 10 of those happens, but that's still a deal that I wouldn't have got otherwise. Yeah, I like that aspect of it, too. So I cover utilities and banks and other things. So it's fun to have your fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, but more than that, uh, while it is complicated to cover a lot of different things, at the end of the day, there's something simple about what we do that I really enjoy, too. Like, I don't have to have, even have a notebook when I do an interview. I'm looking for three pieces of information. Company A buys company B for bank. You know what I mean? Um, and the Which rest... is really important for people to understand. Oh. <laughs> that that's what we're looking for. Yeah, you it's know? as simple as that. And yeah. that's, you know, so you can go into and, and what you're doing when you're talking to people is you're just... Just trying to engage, um, keep the ball moving forward. But you're just looking for three small pieces of information. And when you get them, you got it first. You won. Everybody knows it. It's a good feeling. Right. That's. I think that's right. But then we have to the, – the, the interesting thing is here is that we can't work on that basis, right? You can't go to a meeting and say, hey, no, these that's are the true. three things yes. I want. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like going on a date in a hotel yes. and asking her which room she's staying in. You can't – you can't like be that up front. You have to have a conversation. There has to be a dialogue. And and this is where the job is interesting. You, If you're meeting with someone, you have to actually know the background uh, yeah, to the story. Absolutely. You have to, absolutely. You have to, and, and you're really good at this, Matt. And actually, both you guys, because you've covered these industries for a long time, you really get your companies. You get your industries. You can sit with these guys or these girls who cover the, the sectors from the banks or the law firms or the PR firms and actually have like a really informed discussion. Yeah. And then at some point within that conversation, you get to kind of the details about, and, you know. And and I have found that to be extremely important because it helps you weed out. One of the most important things of what we do is the ability to weed out what is incorrect information from correct information. Uh, because some good sources even will will share things with you that are just not right. And the better you understand the industries, the more you can figure out in your own head, that sounds right or that doesn't sound right. Uh, and it's something you know that for me, I covered the media world before I did this job. So even from the jump, I could tell you what media deals made sense and what were like, there was just no way that was going to happen. Uh, and I, I know it was helpful for me when previous this summer, you know, the wall street journal came out with a story saying dish and T-Mobile were merging. I knew so much about those companies and the backstory there that when they ran that stories, I thought this, this is not right. This can't be right. This does not match up with, what I have heard up until this point. And it wasn't right. It was too early at that point. Yeah, there had been some discussions, but there were too many complicating factors that I knew about that ended up being the complicating factors that made that deal not happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is not something that I could have done with some of the more obscure IT elements of, of technology, which is also in my beat, 
because I just am not up to speed at that level where I could say that deal's not happening. Yeah, uh, and it's important. And the more the better you can get in that, I think the better you can be as a M and A reporter. I'm curious, is there anything you guys flat out don't like about the job? I think the hardest thing, and I'll put, I'll answer it that way. The hardest thing about the job is just dealing with the ups and the downs. You know, like it's so intense. You go from a hero to a zero of getting to a hero. Beat, you mean? Yeah, yeah, and just not just getting you go on a dry run, you're a loser, and then all of a sudden things will turn on a dime, and like you're the man, and then you get beat. You know, the journal drops a fifty billion dollar deal on you, and you just you everybody knows you didn't do your job that day. You know, and then just kind of trying to keep an equilibrium amid all that is probably. I think that's the most psychologically taxing aspect of it for me. It's so true, and it's such a um, it's such a form game. Like when you're, I guess you guys are going to agree with this, but when you when you're in like a run, you're in a run, and you could be breaking like story after story after story. You almost get to the point where you're like, Jesus, when is this yeah, going to slow down? Easy, yeah. And then when you get out of a run. It's the total opposite yeah, where you just you can't land anything. Your 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 tips are getting broken by other people. You're not quite getting there. You have information, but it's not quite right. And I don't know if there's a sort of real reason for that. The, the only sort of theory I would have on it is that you know if you're breaking stuff, then people in the market in the kind of ecosphere that Matt described, they are inclined to call you because they assume you're in possession of material information, and there then you get more conversations and you get more information and so on and so on and it builds. Yeah. But I, but I would share that sort of point. With Matt, I mean, I think the frustrating thing about this job is the volatile nature of it. You, you know, you, you can have really good days, you can have really good weeks, you can have really good months, but it's guaranteed that at some point you're going to have like big dips as well, and those are quite tough to live with. I, I find one of the challenging parts of this job being sort of, and I and I've I think I'm a little bit I'm two and a half years into this job, and I'm a little better now, but there's no off switch with this job. You could just keep going. Uh, over and over again. There's always more people to talk to. There's always more people to meet. There, our, our universes are quite big. There are always deals percolating there. And to sort of being able to figure out like, all right, you know, I did enough for today and now I'm going to go home. Uh, that part to me is always a little tricky. You know, we're trying to get as many market moving stories as we can. So, so, so being able to figure out sort of how much attention to spend on what, and then by the way, the the three of us are also doing a handful of other things. We're doing this podcast. We're we're writing feature stories. We're we're trying to fit in these other things in addition to our the job that takes let's say eighty percent of our time. So 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 being comfortable with I did enough today, I think is something that, you know, I struggled with, but I think I'm getting to the point where I'm more okay with it. One other thing I just want to add to this very quickly, and I'd be interested to know if you guys have sort of similar thought on this, is I find a difficulty in this job is really genuinely not knowing what job in journalism I'd want to do next. I mean, I've done beat reporting jobs and I've done sort of featurey jobs, particularly when I was at the FT. But I mean, this is like such a, it's such an exciting job and, and sort of alluding to what Alex is saying, it's such an all consuming job when you want it to be. It's very difficult to kind of know after M&A what job do I want to do next as a reporter? One of the nice things about being an M&A reporter is that the skill set, I think, is very transferable to any sort of investigative journalist job. Our job is to try to get people to tell us things where they're not supposed to tell us. And that, too, is one of the things that I love and sort of hate about the job, too. This job is hard, and sometimes I have to stop when I'm not in one of those runs and take a step back and be like, this is not an easy job. We're all trying to get people to tell us things when they shouldn't be telling us things. And that's difficult to be able to do that. But it's a transferable skill 
so that you can get into other aspects of life. And I think the skill set carries on. It's just the level of sourcing that doesn't. And I think that, in many ways, is the tough part about leaving this. Because to your earlier point, Matt, of where you provide value, to work for several years to build up this stable of sources and then to go somewhere else, you sort of feel like I've just thrown away all the value I've had and you have to start from ground zero. And I think that's daunting for certain people. Matt Monks uh, and Ed Hammond, uh, our two other M&A reporters, along with myself, Alex Sherman, we make up the U.S. deals team at Bloomberg. I hope you found that enjoyable and insightful. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal at Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Matt Monks is at MattMonks123 and Ed Hammond at EdHammondNY. See you next week. We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. And Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check them out and subscribe today.